Okay, so we're back in James. Uh, the series is called Facing Life and Death Trials Together. The whole thing is about how the trials that we face uh, begin to shape us and uh, change us, but also reflect what we're like. And we've been seeing all the way through that every trial that we face is also an opportunity and a temptation. Or rather, every trial is two things. It's an opportunity and a temptation. Just have a look um, at your sheets there. So the passage we're, we're going to be looking at is 4, uh, 1 to 10, which I'll read later. But just to get us into that, we're going to cover some ground that we've covered before. So right at the beginning, James chapter 1, verse 2, James says there on your sheets, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And, and we've seen how that in some ways could seem absurd. Trials of many kinds, pure joy, what, are the Ukrainians supposed to cheer every time a bomb hits a tower? Are we supposed to cheer when we hear a loved one is suffering, perhaps on the face of death? Are we supposed to cheer when we're in the depths of depression, hardly able to move because we feel so incapacitated by our own internal grief? Pure joy, absurd, absurd, ridiculous, unless... Unless God is totally in control as our sovereign heavenly father, working in the details of our lives to make us more like the Lord Jesus, who suffered more than anyone and yet knew joy deeper than anyone has ever experienced. Every trial is an opportunity to mature and grow in your relationship with God. But every trial, as we've seen, is also a temptation to ignore God and pursue selfish pride. And, and trials might not seem like trials, like wealth and comfort and ease. But James says even those are a trial, a test. And they could become a temptation to ignore God, pursue selfish pride. And, and we've seen all the way through that the opposite response to joy is double-mindedness, is there in that same uh, section in James 1, there on your sheets. Let me pick up at verse 7 of chapter 1. The person who doubts God's goodness and is, is praying, doubting God's goodness, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Verse 7, such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Is double-minded and unstable in all they do. In the midst of the turmoil of life, the double-minded person looks to the world to provide rather than to the sovereign Lord. They ignore God and they pursue selfish pride. So what about you? How do you respond to trials? Joy, recognising God is shaping you and developing you, making you more like the Lord Jesus? Or with that double-mindedness that doubts and is fickle and turns away from God and looks to themselves or the world to provide rather than God himself? What kind of person are you? We're both, aren't we? We're both. I'm both. I see that in myself, even as I was preparing this sermon. This, this passage has been very dear to me and very precious to me and has taught me a lot, especially since um, being a pastor. And I, I felt this week just a massive contradiction of sin in my mind and unhelpful thoughts. And We're a contradiction, aren't we? And yet James is trying to call us away from that double-mindedness. 
and yet all the time recognizing that it's there. Hence, he needs to keep calling us away from it. Let's just go back through a few more verses in James. So James chapter 1, verse 16 on your sheets. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. It's very easy to become deceived. The same lie that Adam and Eve believed that God is a killjoy and that we'll be happy if we run our lives our way and ignore him. That same lie is just attacking us all the time. But don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters, James says, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Who here contributed to their own birth? We didn't make that decision. That wasn't our initiative. That wasn't something that we thought, oh, I think I'll get born now. I'll work really hard and maybe I'll get born. It's the initiative of a parent, isn't it? The Father gave us birth. We, we do not contribute to our salvation. God, in his grace, reached out to us, gave us new birth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did that, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created, like a, like a foretaste of the new creation. We, we've seen before when we were looking at this, we're like a portal into the new creation. God has given us new birth and we have life in us that will last for eternity. So James says, live it out. Live out your identity in Christ. Live out the gracious, grace-filled person that he has created you to be. But then we see that double-mindedness creeping in. Verse 23 there, as we continue on your sheets through these verses that I've put down there, chapter 1, verse 23. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. James has said, you've been born again by the word of truth. You live and breathe the word of truth. You have the word implanted in you. Your identity is a child of God. You're in perfect relationship with him. You have everything to live for. The new creation is your home, home, home where you're heading. And yet somehow we look in the word, like staring in the mirror, and then we immediately forget what you look like. And we think, we use that really sad, hard, but I think helpful illustration when we were looking at this back, back then of, of the anorexic girl looking at herself in the mirror. And instead of seeing a beautiful, healthy young woman. See someone who is ugly and needs to lose 30 stone. But we look in the mirror and instead of seeing the child of God that God has recreated us to be, we walk away, we forget what we look like and we live as if we're an enemy of God or as if we're self-sufficient or as if we don't need him. We forget our identity. And so we saw in chapter 3, verse 10, there on your sheets, out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be, James says, but it, it is, isn't it? We're standing singing these joyful songs. And yet we know this week we've said things to hurt the people we love the most. We've thought things that are just selfish and evil. We've pursued things that are not taking us towards our heavenly home. James says in that bit of chapter 3, you can't get salt water coming out of a fresh spring, and yet somehow that, that happens in us. Somehow with, with this, this torrent of, of the grace of God, but also something that brings death. 
And so maybe you got to last week's sermon uh, and last week's passage that's there on your sheets. I've printed the passage that Connor spoke from last week and maybe it depressed you. Just have a look with me. 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, and then peace-loving and considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, reap a harvest of righteousness. And we think, I want to be that. But I see that contradiction in myself both of those things. I'm, I'm the thing I shouldn't be, as well as knowing that sometimes I am the thing I should be. Why? When Connor was preaching last week, I was reminded of this passage in Romans 7. I put there on your sheet. This is Paul, someone whose style is very different to James, but he sees the same struggle going on. Romans 7, there on your sheets. Paul says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. James describes the law as the perfect law that gives freedom. Paul sees that, that living out God's word is a good thing. Verse 17, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me, for I know that the good, that good itself does not dwell in me, well, that is in my sinful nature, or, or my flesh, my earthly self. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. He finds himself in a place of despair. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of, that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see that contradiction in yourself? I see it in myself. Is there any hope? Is there any healing? If you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you're thinking, no, no, I'm just going to be the same old contradiction until Jesus returns. And in one sense, you will. But there is a way to minister grace to yourself. And James does it beautifully in chapter 4. But it, it hurts. It hurts. We're going to see it hurts. And so I've called this sermon, and you see the sermon title there on your sheets. Lots of space if you want to take notes, but please, if you find it easier to listen without taking notes, then do. God's gracious opposition to his double-minded people. God's gracious opposition to his double-minded people. It may sound like a contradiction terms, but let's dive in. Well, the first solution to the problem of the mess in our hearts and what causes the mess in our hearts is to admit something about ourselves. Let's dive into chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Pretty much everyone who looks at this passage, and we did it uh, when Gareth was leading us in our group, it was very helpful to do says, just pause there. We, we, know, we know what James is about to say. You can read it there on your sheets. But just pause there. What causes fights and quarrels among you? And in the moment, what do we do? All of us do it. We point the finger. 
We point the finger at someone else. I say things to myself like, I would be a much kinder and gentler dad if you children were just more obedient. I would be a better husband if Lucy would simply do this, 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 and this. I would be a better pastor to you, I'd be a better friend to you, if you would simply... And we, we think, what causes fights and quarrels among us? It's, oh, they make my life so hard. But James says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you, in your heart? And then he goes on in this way that just seems like ridiculous exaggeration, but he wants us to feel the weight of it. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Now, if there was a problem of people being wiped out in the churches that James was writing to, you'd think he might spend a little bit more time on this. So I don't think he means literally kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And again, if there was massive fighting going on, you'd think he would he'd address that quite practically. So I don't think there's literal killing or public fighting each other, or he'd say, stop that, and he'd rest there for a bit. The problem is that the selfish desires and pride which are in the heart and are the root of all kinds of conflicts are the cause. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. And we see it much more easily out there than we do in here. So we can see that Putin is mad and horrid and even evil in what he's doing. And we see his selfish desires are destroying a nation and destabilizing the world. The reality is that none of us have the ability to mobilize an army of 200,000. But with the resources that we have, don't we harbor resentment in our hearts? Don't we blame others? Don't we seek our own self-satisfaction? The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. And the problem is you're looking in the wrong place for your satisfaction. So James goes on, as verse 2 continues, you do not have because you do not ask God. So he identifies the first problem is, is kind of a problem of prayerlessness a problem of not looking to the one who has all the resources in the universe to be the one who provides for us. We, we don't look to him to be our provider. And, and one of the clearest examples of self-sufficient pride is, is prayerlessness, isn't it? Because, well, I'm depending on myself, not on God. But even when we do pray, what's our motivation? Verse three, when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now that word pleasure is, is a revealing word because pleasure is, is a wonderful thing in the Bible and God wants us to enjoy the pleasure of the creation that he's given us. But that word is the word that we get our English word hedonism from. It's self, self-serving pleasures. But it's self-serving pleasures that are apart from God. So it's like we're we're seeing the good things that God has given us, but we're, we're asking with the wrong motives. Lord, give me the house like them. 
And, and maybe we say things like, so that I might use it for hospitality. So that I might um, be generous with it. But in reality, we just want the comfortable, easy life that the neighbours around us we certainly have. We're going to come back to that, but the first solution to the problem in our hearts and this double-mindedness that we observe is to admit it and to admit the reality that my biggest problem is me and your biggest problem is you. And when you see a, a, an actual conflict taking place, that should be our first instinct. My biggest problem is not them, they may be at fault, but actually my biggest problem is me. And then to realise that the, the pursuit of pleasure is not wrong, the question is where do you think that you will find that pleasure? And so start engaging in good self-examination. Does your desire go beyond the level of receiving a good gift from God? And does your desire go into actually wanting that good gift more even than God himself? Where has the good thing that you want, what is it you're longing for now? What's the next stage of your life? What's the next relationship, the next job, the next financial hurdle? What is it that you want? And has that reached a status that is becoming bigger than God himself? Has the good thing that God gives us and loves to give us become a God thing? That's the way to describe idolatry. Idolatry is when a good thing becomes a God thing. We pursue idols, we turn good things that God has made into God things that we end up worshipping, longing for, and think that those things will satisfy us. But actually James doesn't use the word idolatry, which perhaps we're used to in religious language, and we're always trying to identify our idols. James uses something that is actually really far more personal and offensive. He calls it adultery. Do you see verse 4? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? When he says the world there, he means finding satisfaction in the world. doesn't mean don't have friends who aren't Christians. <laughs> don't you realise that finding your satisfaction, making friends with this life, and what that can provide apart from God, means enmity against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So the root cause of our problem, and as we do the self-examination, as we are ready to admit, the root cause of our problem is adultery with that good thing that we've turned into a God thing, and we've started to worship it. And just as if a husband starts going off with another woman, rather than cherishing and loving and serving his wife, he actually begins to hate her. So pursuing something that we think will satisfy us more than God himself is hatred towards God. And when a good thing becomes a God thing, you go straight from breaking the first command, great command that Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. You go straight from breaking that, because you're going after something else, and then bang into breaking the second command, love for neighbour. What causes conflicts and troubles among you? It's the fact that you've displaced God, and you've put something else there. And then you get cross with the people who are in your way from getting that thing. And the good thing that you could be pursuing could be a really, really good thing, a beautiful thing. 
like a marriage relationship or, or even a, a charitable initiative or a mission objective. But when that thing becomes success in that thing, becomes more important than God himself, God then is dropped down and then other people become barriers to you achieving the success that you want. But before we go back to examine that, I just want you to see the encouragement, the massive encouragement from the negative here. We might be feeling, oh my word, James is saying I'm an adulterer, I'm an enemy of God. But just think what James is saying by implication. If we're in danger of adultery, what does that mean? How does that mean God sees us? It means that God sees us as those who are married to him. If you're trusting in Christ, God sees you like his bride. He loves you like a husband loves his wife, like the perfect husband loves his wife. God loves you. You are precious to him. He wants a relationship with you that, that human intimacy is only a, a, fail imita- a pale imitation of. God loves you like a husband loves his wife. And enemy, well, the opposite of enemy is friendship. God, God is saying he's your friend. J- Jesus looks at you. Jesus looks at me as his friend. And he says those amazing words that he says in um, is it John 14. Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friend. Jesus says, I, I love you as my friend. I, I've died for you. I care about you. In fact, he loves you so much in that intense way. Verse 5 continues, do you see? Verse 5. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? It's, it's a, perhaps a slightly complicated phrase, but James is referring to the fact that all the way through the Old Testament, God is described as like a husband to his bride, his people, the people of Israel who become the church. So, so God is the great husband who is jealous for his wife. Now, when we think of jealousy and when we watch jealousy in films, it's always portrayed as a negative thing, isn't it, of perhaps a, a boyfriend whose girlfriend is going off him and he becomes jealous to sort of have what is not his and her life is her own and, and he shouldn't be jealous for her. That's stalking, isn't it? That, that's, that's, that's the kind of jealousy that is not appropriate. The kind of jealousy that wants something that is not his. But, but the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life for us to die, us, to die for us, to bring us into relationship with God as our father, but also to be part of the church and with God as our husband. And we have, we have committed ourselves to him. When we, when we put our trust in Christ, it's like we said marriage vows. We said, Lord, I want you to be my Lord and my Father. I want you to be the husband of the church. I'm committed to you. And actually, jealousy in a true and loving marriage relationship is a good thing. It's a really good thing. It's saying that in the moment that you're straying, God is pursuing you, not, not to beat you up, but out of love. To say to you, I'm your husband, I love you, I want you back. If you are married and your spouse comes home and says, I slept with another man last night, I slept with another woman last night. And your response is, ah, oh, that's not ideal. Let's, let's move on, let's move on. What will they conclude 
about you and your attitude to them. They'll conclude that you don't really care. That actually you don't prize this relationship that much and maybe they were right to go off with someone else. God tells us he really cares. He's jealous for us. Um, we were watching a, a film the other night. What's it called? The Lost Daughter. Has anyone else seen that with um, Olivia Coleman? It's a real sort of... I didn't know how to, <laughs> what to make of it, but there's a bit in it where she, she leaves her husband and he's there in tears, pleading with her. What can I do to keep us together? And she's sort of... She's in anguish later on because she's sort of walked away from this covenant relationship. But you can see he really loves her. He really cares about her. And you're not thinking, this idiot, why is he trying to cling to her? He really cares. He really loves. And she's walking away. God has committed himself to us. He loves us. He cares for us. He does not want us to go after things. And unlike human relationships, God knows that nothing else can satisfy us other than him. And so his, his jealous love for us is for our good. He's jealous, but, verse 6, in his jealousy, he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. There we are trying to walk away, and he gives us more grace in that moment, and he calls us back. And then James continues, that is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Or it's the same word, favour is grace. He gives us more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We stray, he gives grace. We humble ourselves, he gives more grace. I don't know if you've hit the stage yet where you can feel a sense of gratitude that God hasn't answered some of your prayers. I don't know if you've had that experience yet. Feel a sense of gratitude that God hasn't answered some of your prayers. I was... Um, speaking to a friend recently, who was desperate, desperate to be married. Absolutely desperate. To the point where it was, it was obvious to all her friends that she was desperate to be married. And she felt a real sense of longing, and, and she cried out to God for the right man to come. And yet recently she said she's feeling a sense of tension, of relief and gratitude to God for not answering that prayers, because she's seen marriage breakdown in some very precious friends of hers that she'd envied, whose relationship she'd envied. She thought that they, that was the, the be-all and end-all. Thank you, Lord, for not answering my prayers. Some of you have heard me say that, actually, I've, I think I've never been more content than I was in autumn and since then, of pastoring a, a small church where a lot of the congregation are more mature than me and don't take me as seriously as I take myself. Because there's been, there's been so many leadership scandals in the church recently, um, and especially in our constituency. And I've been reading reports of church pastors who I've admired, who've, had, who've been accused of overbearing leadership and manipulating people. And I, I read these reports and I think, I'm like that. Thank you, Lord, for not answering my prayers, for being this immensely successful sort of world-publicised church leader. Have you got to the stage where you can 
Praise God that he's not answered some of your prayers. That God opposes the proud. And sometimes that pride is deep and undiagnosed. When, when your pride, like mine, or like my friends, is, is for, for a good, healthy Christian marriage, that doesn't feel like a pride thing, does it? Or, or when your pride is, is wanting you to see Jesus glorified and many people saved and, and, and more people won for Christ and the church built up and more people taught. But actually you want to be the one who's centre stage in that. Maybe you could see that it's not about you. And the problem isn't all those people who got in the way and the church that wasn't quite good enough as an evangelism to give you the stage that you wanted. Instead, you can do verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Say, Lord, I, I submit to you again. I don't want to be in charge of my life. I wasn't very good at running my life. I'm not very good at running my life on my own. I want to trust you and strive with all my heart and all my energy to live for the goals that you call me to. And I don't want to believe the lies of the devil anymore. I'm going to resist the devil. Those lies that tell me that you've been a killjoy, that you've withheld from me good things because I should be able to run my life my way better. I've believed those lies, but I don't want to anymore. And so verse 7, James says, resist the devil. And how can he say with such confidence he will flee from you? Is the devil weak? No, the devil's not weak. And you're not strong. But the devil is defeated. He's a defeated enemy. Christ won that victory on the cross. And the devil has no hold over you unless you believe his lies. So stop believing his lies, resist him, and he'll flee from you. He has no power. He has no influence over us as, well, he only has as much power and influence over us as we choose to give him. So let's choose to give him none. Instead, verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. God will have us back. Me, the adulterer. God will have me back. But it's not just good enough, James says, to, to just say, I delight in God's love for me. Also, I need real repentance. And to say, what is it on earth in this world that I have allowed to become more important to me than God himself? I need to identify that thing. And then verse 8. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We are going to bask in God's love. We should bask in God's love. But to get there, we need to do verse 9. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Ask yourself in that moment of, of sadness, of self-reflection. What has hijacked my heart? Whose arms have I put myself in? Is it power? Promotion, success, approval of people around me, comfort, peace. They're all good things, but have I put myself into their arms more than into the arms of God himself? Has that thing become a friend to me more important than the very friendship of God himself? Do I need to mourn and wail over those fleeting things, those things that are passing away, those things that will not last, that have become more important to me than the dazzling beauty of God himself in his grace? Verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord, 
Humble yourself before the Lord. Go down low. I was hearing this week about someone describing the gravity of grace. Not, not how serious it is or how big it is, but how just as like, Newton's apple falls to the lowest point, so God's grace will fall to the very lowest point. And if we're up here all haughty and proud, it will fall past us. But if we collapse on the floor in a heap, recognising that we have nothing to offer, then God's grace, the gravity of God's grace will come down to meet us. And then the power of God's grace will lift us up. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. When you realise you're the problem, when you turn away from your selfish desires, when you receive the grace of God, then you will start, well, you'll start to enjoy life more, even in the hard times. And the trials will become more meaningful to you. And you'll consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. But also, the very person who has angered you, who has irritated you, who has frustrated you, the very things that are the barrier to you, the people who are just so annoying, you will start to care about them more than you care about yourself. You'll put yourself in their shoes and you'll think, I don't like that criticism that you made of me, <laughs> but I'm a spiritual adulterer. So you may have missed the mark on that one, but you, if you'd shot slightly to the left, you would have hit me head on. You'll be able to take their criticism. And then you'll be able to apologise and become to them an overflowing stream of God's grace. Not because you have it in yourself, but because you've received from the Father of heavenly lights. You've received from the great streams of living water flowing to you and then through you to others. You have nothing you can give to others that you have not received. And so bask in the grace of God, recognising that you were an adulterer, but that he pours out more grace. He gives more grace. And you will go on being a contradiction in terms. You will go on being a mess. This will happen again. You'll have to come back here again and again and again and again. And James says when it happens again, that's it. That's over, isn't it? You're done for. God won't give. Oh, no, no, he doesn't. Verse 6. He gives us more grace. And in that moment, he might oppose the proud heart that you have in order to humble you and to put you in a place where you can receive the grace that he wants to give to the humble.